This podcast is a proud member of the Paranormality Podcast Network. tuxedos, Bentleys, and thousand-dollar bottles of wine. They glare down from high-rise terraces. With upturned nose, they stride across the thousand-square-foot yacht, capable of engulfing a score of New York City apartments, all fortified behind elegantly constructed spike steel fences, from which they lounge in luxury with the masses safely crowded out of sight and concern. The world expertly dissected and sectioned off in a hierarchical piecemeal corpse, highest bidder, firmest grasp, or most cunning exploit. The method is inconsequential to the type of buyer to the breed. A pie of assets with the center removed and barred with exclusive access, while the rest of us mouth-breathing plebeians quarrel over the thinly sliced, discarded scraps. Squeezed with thumb and finger, hand to mouth, paycheck to leaking pockets, were bled like so many herd animals, factory farmed homo expendables, human materials, crushed under the steel heel of those who have. What defiance have the ant against the elephant? There is but one solution in today's episode. From farm to barn table, the herd shall dine on blue blood in episode one, Eat the Rich. I'm your host, Rob Basercha. Joining me are my fellow horror hounds, Devin Shepard and David B. Jacobs, and we are Cadaver Dogs. How are we doing today, guys? Man, that was a fantastic intro. Way to start us off on episode one. I'm Devin Shepard. I am a writer, director, and producer. Uh, Most recently, I produced the feature film A Nightmare Wakes, which you can now see on Shudder. And I also directed the sci-fi horror podcast Cryptids, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And I am David B. Jacobs. I am a writer, director, and a script supervisor, as well as a horror fanatic. Most recently, I was the script supervisor on A Nightmare Wakes, which is now streaming on Shudder. Um, my name is Rob Sercha. I'm a grip for Local 52, as well as uh, the owner and runner of Whimsy Productions, LLC. We do uh, short films and other kinds of horror podcasts, music videos, all kinds of crazy content. Before we get started, please check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Our account is Cadaver Dogs Pod. So let's get started. Our first film, we are treated to a twisted take on an age-old game of cat and mouse. Why don't you kick us off, Devin? Yeah, I'm excited to introduce our first film, which is Ready or Not. Directed by Matt Bettinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillette, also known as Radio Silence. Uh, this film came out in 2019. I'll give you a quick summary. On her wedding night, Grace, played by Samara Weaving, is invited to play a game with her new husband's family, who are, quote, wealthier than God. They play the game Hide and Seek which quickly turns into a deadly game of hunter and hunted as Grace's new in-laws take up weapons and try to kill her. God, that's such a good tagline. That's better than the trailer. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah, so how do you guys, what do you guys think of this movie? I really enjoyed Ready or Not for the horror comedy that it is. What do you think, David? I absolutely love Ready or Not. I've seen it three times in the past year. Um, I, I, I'm obsessed with this movie. I think it is incredible. It is my comfort food. I will watch it any night that it is suggested. David, you'll be so proud of me. I love this film so much more the second go around. Um, I was not such a big fan 
uh, when I first saw this movie. And I'm trying now to remember why, because I think it's like a fun and really smart film. I actually have a bone to pick with you over that, Devin, because uh, I did not see this movie in theaters because Devin told me that it was worth waiting for rental. No way, really? (laughs) See, that's the opposite. David like guilted me for a year to watch this movie. I just hadn't gotten around to it. So um, (laughs) the characters are really kind of dopey. You know, like, yeah. what's her name? Samara? Yeah. I mean, she she's not really a Sigourney Weaver, is she? Like, no, she I mean... Kinda, she kind of almost deserves... Not not deserve to die, because no one deserves to die. But when uh, when her husband, Alex, in the beginning, uh, takes her and, like, whisks her away to, like, that tunnel, and they're going to escape, and he's going to unlock the doors yeah. and whatnot, she's just, like, blubbering for, like, five minutes. It's like, girl... All these guys are trying to murder you. Get She's the fuck for like out of there. 30 seconds. Not really. She bubbled <laughs> long enough for the guy to watch an entire YouTube video on crossbow treatment and hear her from the bathroom. I think that's a really interesting point to bring up because what I got from it was like, there are a few moments in here that are realistic. Like, yeah, that's yeah. what I would do in real life. And I think bringing out that realism is what made it comedic for me. The daughter, Emily, like she is a bumbling buffoon and like is a a huge comedic relief. But I think there's a moment where she, (laughs) she tells her dad, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't know what I was doing either. I wouldn't know how to shoot a gun. I wouldn't know how to aim it at a person properly. I wouldn't know how to like act within the moment to like know not to shoot someone's head if I was trying to shoot them. Like that to me was like hilarious, but also extremely realistic. Yeah, well, I think that would be realistic if we took you, Devin Shepard, in there. But she grew up in a family that knew she was going to do this at some point. So you'd think they'd be like, no, here's how a gun work. They didn't know that this almost never happens. Well, Literally, they knew it was going to happen at some point. The only other time this has happened was in that cold open when it's Aunt Helene. Oh, that's not the other. Uh, Andy, Andy McDowell plays the mom, and she's the one who says, like, this has only happened once before since I've been in the family. Uh, I thought it so, happened. So, literally, it, this has not happened since I they like were the kids. Aunt. The aunt with those, like, ridiculous things. <laughs> she's a great comedic relief. I love when, in, in the beginning, there's a moment where she's talking, uh, when Emily first arrives, and Emily's like, oh, Aunt Helene, it's nice to see you. And Aunt Helene goes, brown-haired niece, you continue to exist. <laughs> That is one of the greatest things ever. (laughs) All right. So I was wondering, um, she's going to go play some sort of twister or checkers or chess and whatnot. And then she doesn't take off her wedding dress. Realistic or not realistic? I think realistic. I think (laughs) it is her wedding night. You wear that dress once. She probably paid so much money for it. And as a woman who has worn dresses and nice dresses, I love to keep wearing them. And I would hate to change out of them, especially if I think that like, we're just going to go play old maid or something for an hour. And then I get to go back up and have my husband like <laughs> undo my wedding dress. Like that is such a big deal. <laughs> so I want to talk about this. Do, do you guys think it's a horror comedy or a comedy horror? I mean, like where, where is the comedy. line drawn? You think it's a horror? How you think, do you define that? How do you define that? Well, I, I think, I think it's just a weighing of the elements or whether or not the elements of horror outweigh yeah, the elements which? of comedy. So wh- whatever comes forth is what out what outweighs the other so a horror comedy would be something where there's comedic elements but the horror takes for the forefront a comedy horror would be the opposite so like club dread very obviously a a comedy horror evil dead 2 that could be horror comedy whereas evil dead 3 comedy horror evil dead 2 i'd say is comedy horror but ready or not i think is horror comedy see i think it's i don't know i don't know what i think i i I, because it it's very grounded 
the humor all comes from the characters. Uh, they are saying things that they would actually say in those scenarios. It's, it, it is slightly heightened, but not overwhelmingly so. They're not spitting one-liners for the sake of it. Except for maybe once or twice at the end she goes like, Ah, in-laws. You don't think it's kind of silly that they're they're supposed to play checkers and so they have to play hide and seek and they all have to kill each other and then they mess up because the cokehead daughter who shoots the maid by accident and then well, the maid then like all, all the deaths are comedic right what what about that scene when she's trying to get through the fence this is kind of like a staple oh my God, of I horror love that comedy, comedy horse is that like people just incur like an unrealistic amount of bodily damage and they just kind of shrug it off like she she like slips through this fence after she's fallen down a well gotten shot in the hand same hand went through a spike she rips through this fence gashes her back open and then the car going by just goes get the fuck out of the road and you're like oh man all of that is like horrific though that those are all horrible things that are happening like if you you just saying that i didn't find it funny i'm like yeah that's terrifying i think a lot of it's just the number of jokes because the original dawn of the dead they're talking about eating the zombies to sustain themselves and they're getting drunk in the newsroom and stuff it's a pretty funny movie but it's all shrouded in this very dark bleak feeling throughout that pervades the movie like most of the movie is not funny ready or not pretty much every scene is funny and the story is kind of silly like at the end of the day it, it asks this question like how evil are the rich which i'm actually not sure what the critique of this film is is it critiquing the idea of the illuminati of this like rich body of satan worshiping rich or is it making fun of people who hold that idea by having this ridiculous story i think it's critiquing the rich but it's also kind of having a little bit of fun with it it, it kind of assumes that you agree with it to a certain extent where it doesn't try to convince you that the rich are evil. It just shows like, oh, these rich people are evil. They're literally Satanists. They've literally made a deal with the devil that has created this. But I think also a lot of movies dissecting the appeal of that and why people accept this life, like going off charity again. She chose to be part of this family. And she knew what was going to happen. She knew what they were. And she said, well, I've been poor my entire life and I hate it and I want to live in this luxurious life. So I'm going to do it. She doesn't even love her husband, I don't think. That couple, they hate each other. <laughs> yeah, it's become clear that... Uh, I almost get the feeling that she's changed so much as a person that their love is like... It's almost like this idea that wealth um is like poisoning you know yes what wealth destroys things yeah that's that's a really interesting take on it and i think that's definitely like the overall theme and upon this like second watching i saw something a little bit deeper and you touched on this a little bit david but something that i really love and i think that is um seen throughout helen is this world where um whether you're rich or not people having to believe in something so much that they can't believe in anything else. Like Aunt Helen has to believe so much that her husband died for a cause that to believe anything else would ultimately be destructive to her living and living healthily. Um, and I think I think I see this more through um, when Charity at the end, when Charity is pointing a gun at her own husband, Daniel, mm. and she says, you really don't care if I die right before she shoots him. And she, that's her telling herself that lie. Because she needs to believe it in order to justify her actions. And I saw that a yeah. lot happening throughout all the characters of this film. 
actually really wanted to talk about that moment. I think it's so interesting um, because to me, I see Charity and Daniel is her husband. Uh, so Daniel is played by Adam Brody, him and Charity. I see them as a parallel to uh, Grace and Alex, the main couple. It, the roles are switched. I mean, Daniel is flawed. He's kind of an asshole. He's an alcoholic. He's always hitting on Grace, but he is ultimately sides against his family, including his wife. Whereas with Alex and Grace, Alex sides with his family against his wife. Because he has to believe it, right? At the end, he has to believe that everything that his family is going to die in order to justify his actions of everything that he just did to his wife. We are kind of asked the question if Daniel is justified in basically killing his whole family. Yeah, it, it's mean, really interesting. Th there is this weird idea because like the idea of uh, Satan and whatnot, like the movie doesn't really wrestle with like religious tones. In they're not wrestled with explicitly till the very end. Although there is a lot of religious symbolism, like her name is Grace. Um, she gets a nail through her hand after rising from the grave at the end for her second coming and all this other stuff, right? That aside, is just to kind of like, I think, pit her in the as the white light against the evildoers, right? Even though the evildoers, like when she wins, their children explode. So it's like, wow, did she really do anything good? Like, I don't know. Do these rich people do anything bad other than once in 50 years? They make, like, card games. I don't know if they're evil people aside from that. They're kind of, like, stuck. Like, I I kind of side with them a little bit. Like, that sucks. It sucks you have to murder somebody. But if you don't, your grandma blows up. It's kind of like, you know, if you told yeah. me, dude, murder somebody, your grandma and your nieces blow up, I'd be like, sorry, dude, bang. So, Rob, are you saying that if you were in the Dumas's position, would you make a human sacrifice every year? Fuck Yeah. They do sacrifice Not every year. goats and shit as well. I think they don't do human sacrifices too often, but it is implied that they do other Santa shit. Alex says at some point that they sacrifice goats, and he explains like, "Oh, uh, well, I have the exact quote." She right falls now. in a pit of sacrificial goats. They definitely yeah. sacrifice goats. Oh yeah, no, he li he literally says we sacrifice goats. Well, I find the exact line I wrote down. Uh, Alex says it felt normal to slice a goat's throat. You'll do pretty much anything if your family says it's okay. <laughs> That is a great quote. I do love that. I mean, like, yeah, do you guys feel like you would do everything if it says, okay? To me, I think it's also going back to the the idea that I brought up earlier of, like, you have to tell yourself that these things are okay in order to, like, justify your actions and yeah. live in this fantasy world that they're living in, which includes the devil and Satanists. <laughs> it ties back into what you were saying about Aunt Helene, yeah. But it's not a fantasy world because the end, it turns out it's true. See, if yep. it was a fantasy world, then we're going to be like, oh, are they justified? But it is not a fantasy world. And if they don't do it, you know, uh, Aunt Helene explodes. Their mother explodes. They die. Everyone dies that they love. It's like, what are you going to do? Their mom like, doesn't they... explode. She was killed with the box. Yeah, that's actually probably the one scene in which Samara is like a real badass. The rest of the movie, <laughs> she's just like barely. Oh, no, she fucks up the butler, too. Can I, we talk I, about that real fast? Because Grace's character, Samara's character, is not all good. She does not treat people greatly. Yeah, she kills the mom. Did she need to kill the mom in that moment? No. Um, the moment when she steals the car and talks to the OnStar person, um, voiced by Nat Faxon, which I just found out, and I love that. Um, she is cruel to him. She is cruel to the guy who is 
quote unquote, the help in that moment, right? So is she really ever any better than this family? Okay, but they're trying to kill her. Yeah. I would have done, the, I have sympathized with all of those things. If I were her in that car, I'd be freaking out. Like people have been trying to kill me all night and you're saying you're going to shut down the car that I just got to drive away? Fuck you. Yeah, no, no, that, that guy's a jerk off. I, I, I don't really think it's much of a question if uh, Grace is justified in killing mom or whatever. I mean, she tried to kill her. You know, She didn't kill the kid who she was justified in killing too, shot her in the hand. I have a fan theory I'd like to pitch for Ready or Not. So in this movie, it's implied that Mr. LaBelle is what they call the devil in this movie. It's implied that Mr. LaBelle chooses which card you draw and he gives you the hide-and-seek card if he does not approve. Basically, he is giving Samara Weaving Grace uh, the hide-and-seek card because she is too nice and good and isn't going to be willing to do the stuff that the family wants. I'm going one step further. I propose that he gives you the hide-and-seek card specifically if you do not know about the hide-and-seek card. So, first off, the only evidence we're given, we only know two characters' prior knowledge for certain, those are Grace and Charity. Grace did not know, Charity did know. Uh, so that lines up. We don't know explicitly for anyone else, although it's implied that they knew. Like, Fitch is Emily's husband, he clearly just doesn't believe in this, and she probably told him, and he was just like, <laughs> you're right, okay, sure, I'll do that. And I think this is actually really key, because... It, it, it is a deal with the devil. You have to choose to make the deal with the devil. So the people who are coming into the family are choosing to partake in this. And that is part of why they are still complicit in it. That they are not just victims. They have chosen to join in on this uh, satanic insanity. That's a pretty cool point. I love that theory. So then in that theory, David, we can blame Alex for the whole thing. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I blame Alex anyway, but yes. Well, I mean, he's a little dumbass. Yeah. A lot dumbass. Alex is terrible. <laughs> I, 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 on the first watch of this movie, I, I, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this, Devin, but the first time I watched it, when Alex pulls her aside and is, he's like, I, I couldn't tell you because you would have left me. And I was just like, that feels really weird. And are we supposed to like this guy? Because I kind of don't like him right now. And then I was really glad when I found out, like, oh, no, that filmmakers are clearly aware of this and he they are not going to redeem him in any way. He is full villain by the end. And then the second time I watched the movie, just every time he showed up on screen, I just started screaming at the television, like, you're an asshole. I hate yeah. you. <laughs> no, and I, I, I definitely kept that in mind watching it this time around. And I think, like, Alex is always... I don't want to say he's always a bad dude, but I think he's always a Dumas. And I, I was watching it and saw that he thinks of Grace as his possession. And at every point mm -hmm. that he, he says he loves her and lists the reasons why he loves her, they're uh, selfish reasons on how she affects him. At no point does he say, I love you because you are this. It's I love you because you make me feel this way about myself. And he really does see her as an object. And in that case, like, it is something that also comments on the rich of, like, they look at other people as their possessions, right? The maids in this are seen as possessions, and they, they don't really care when they die. I mean, that one maid, um, she says, I'm not even a maid. Uh, Mr. Dumas just liked the way that I danced. They're always just seen as objects to these people and don't really affect their lives in any way. Yeah, also note that uh, Annie McDowell's character... The mom is made to look a lot like the maids in her hairstyle and whatnot. So that ties into the dad's um, 
potential creepiness in a little subtextual way. Yeah, I, I took the. I, I'm only hired because she likes my dancing as a. She was dancing in his bedroom, kind of thing, and and we <laughs> kind of think what kind of dancing. I, I think I know which kind of dancing, and it had some long pole involved. Question: Is the dad cheating with the maid? I think that's totally implied. That's what I just said. <laughs> yeah, I think the movie implies cheating that the dad cheats in more ways than just through um, the maid saying that he liked the way that she danced. Towards the beginning, when they first start the game, he suggests unturning on the cameras, which is cheating at the game, and it's going against the tradition that they set up. Aunt Helene says, don't pick and choose, don't pick and choose. And I think it's very, um, it's, a, it's a straight commentary on the wealthy during that time. I mean, during the Trump era, Trump era, he was picking and choosing what his powers could and could not be, what his job was and what it wasn't. And I think like Aunt Helene saying that specifically to Mr. Dumas is like, you don't get to pick and choose and just like decide what the rules are so that they best benefit you. And that I saw like a straight commentary on the time. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. It definitely, it seems like there's a commentary not only on like the incompetence of the head of a household or whatever, but just on the rich in general, that's like this kind of undeserved prosperity they have in the upper class. Like they, they have to have supernatural means in order to get it. It's not through merit. It's kind um, of a critique that there is no meritocracy like in this country. Let's pause right here to hear about another creepy podcast on the Paranormality Network. Hey guys, this is Eric and Jessica Carrier, the hosts of the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. If you're looking for a show that explores all things paranormal with dramatic storytelling, historical research, relevant science, and witness accounts, check out our show online at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com or through your favorite podcast player. Thanks for sticking around, pups. Now it's time to jump into our next movie. So our next film, we're going to wind back time um, about 30 years and go back to 1989 for Society, which came out on June 11th and was actually released in the U.S. in 1992. Why don't you give us the plug, David? All right. So Society is directed by Brian Usna of Reanimator fame. He produced Reanimator and directed the sequel. He also directed Return of Living Dead 3, which I love. Uh, it's written by Rick Fry and Woody Keith. Makeup effects by Screaming Mad George. Society follows Bill Whitney, a wealthy teen who is suffering from a growing paranoia that his family does not love him. It turns out, he's right. He is adopted and his rich family has been grooming him for consumption by Society of the Rich, who are literally a different species of bizarre, surrealist, shape-shifting skin people. This movie is insane. Skin people. Remember Skin. towards the end when they're talking about it feels better the more you can stretch? <laughs> <laughs> this this movie really does obscure how quite disturbing it actually is because it has this whole like, it's almost like blue velvet, this kind of like ideal society vibe, this like That's upper class, hody toady, saved by the bell, board short society. And then it turns out they're all like disgusting, um, incestuous skin people poor slobbering eating aristocrats they're poodles poodles yeah. yes they're poodles so they they're not aliens they say specifically we're not aliens it's a matter of good breeding which to me i took that to mean that oh for like thousands of years or whatever they've been specifically choosing genes and inbreeding and i'm like oh it's like they're poodles that is so spot on and like <laughs> that was something i wanted to bring up too because like i read so many reviews where they say oh the rich are aliens i'm like no that's what's the creepiest thing about this they specifically say they are not aliens they are of this planet they are human to an extent and that's like 
I think is what is so important about this film is like to know that there are people like this out there, right? Like yeah. that's the whole scary part about it. It's like, this could be real. Mm-hmm. The rich could be eating you. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, at the time, I think they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like I like the idea of like the rich are just this leech, lecherous kind of leech people who have been with us from the dawn of time. They just suck the life out of us and shunt us. Their mouths literally grow out like mosquitoes and they like fuse with the person they're eating. One guy, uh, he's eating the David Blanchard character and then he gets Blanchard's mole on his face and he's like, yeah, I have a mole now. He is the beauty mark. He really liked that beauty <laughs> mark. Yeah, he's just parading around as kind of like uh, the plebeian, you know? Yeah. It is worth noting that David Blanchett, who is... Um, the sister characters. What's her name? Jenny. Uh, Jen is Jenny's ex boyfriend. Yes, which is funny. And it, she was movie, grooming him too. This movie is surreal. Very little of it makes yes. sense. It, it it opens up in the beginning with Billy walking into his sister's room and noticing her ex boyfriend has been hiding in the closet with like a video camera, and they're just like kind of okay with it. Like they kick him out and he's pissed off, but that's it. It's like they don't call even call the cops on this guy. There's also kidding. no inciting incident. It opens and Bill is already just terrified for no reason well that's a dream (laughs) oh yeah it was so hard to follow like the (laughs) whole first half of this film was like what is happening and so many different things are happening and they don't seem tied together there's practical jokes that are happening there's bugs there's you know all these different uh, surrealist supernatural things happening that don't tie into one another and i had no idea what to be expecting to be real It, it does not make sense uh, there's a part where Bill's rival for class president is Martin Petrie, mm-hmm. and he's like, I have something to tell you. And then Bill goes to meet him, but he, he's dead. Then the next day, he goes to all the and he's like, ah, oh, Martin Petrie is dead. And then everyone's just laughing at him while Martin just walks up behind him and is just alive. And it's never explained. I have no idea how he's alive. Hey, they explain it. It's a practical joke that they make on him in order to embarrass him in front of the um, auditorium. Oh, it was? They did say that. Okay, I was yeah, so confused. Movie, I yeah. was so confused. Yeah, I, it, it would, <laughs> I, I think it is possible. I think he did actually cut his throat. But remember, these are skin people, and I don't think that's oh, how you kill them. Remember, only one yeah. of them dies when he shunts Ted Ferguson. <laughs> yeah, could you please describe that scene for us? <laughs> All right, so shunting is more a very thin veiled for anal fisting being... This movie does kind of take the stance that the rich aristocracy is the most deviant and decrepit of all heirs of society. And that the most deviant form of society is aggressive homosexual behavior. So there is an argument that this movie is a little bit homophobic, right? So anyway, what happens is after the judge who's running this whole weird sex, not alien, alien orgy... Um, where they feast upon the plebeians and create this big, giant, weird blob of incest. They hold down the main character, Billy, and they're going to shunt him, right? After this weird little, like, gladiatorial fight between him and Ted Ferguson. I guess since they're peers, they want to show that, you know, he's inferior in all aspects, like mentally, physically, emotionally, all that. Anyway, Ted Ferguson holds him down. He's about to shunt him up the bum. And uh, Billy grabs his wrist, bends it back in a really weird effect, and shunts him, ripping him inside out, which is reminiscent of the first scene when he bites into an apple and we see that things are crawling under the surface when he hallucinates a bunch of creepy crawlies under the skin of the fruit. 
Here we see a bunch of creepy crawlies in the inside out version of Ted Ferguson. It's like Oogie because Boogie from Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes, all the all the rich are rotten to the core, I guess you could say. And as uh Ferguson is pulled away from Bill, I also just want to point out that they have a sound effect that goes like boiling. <laughs> There's <laughs> like a, a cartoon sound effect. <laughs> that is incredible. This movie does a uh, really tries to downplay the horror of what's going on. Like they have this weird circusy trumpet music towards the end when the shunting's going on. But if the you go back, actually similar to Ready or Not, that they use a lot of classical stuff. It is, it is kind of, which is weird because it's like late eighties. You think it'd be more synthesizer. I, I like the insidious nature of these skin people. How um, Ted Ferguson is going to get an internship in Washington. And uh, they're all waspy. Uh, Dave you know, Blanchett is also Jewish. Yes, and I hadn't considered it, but also the one rich person who betrays them. Devin DeVasquez is the actress. Uh, the character's name is Clarissa, and she is the only one who's like, it's kind of racially ambiguous. But she's yeah. definitely not white. Yeah, and it, yeah. it's weird that they make that um, very, very clear that she is an outsider. The, ho- the whole way that they describe that they show outsiders in this movie, I think, is very purposeful. Like you said, there is homophobia. There is a Jewish character. There is a uh, non-white character, only one. Yeah, and it, it all points to, like, the other. And I think that was always yes. a big thing is, like, how do the rich destroy the others and prey on the others? Yeah. Yeah. Can I talk about the one big thing that bothered me in this movie? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, there's only one? Oh, I mean, there's a few. <laughs> Look, I love 80s movies. I love horror movies. I'm a feminist. There's an extent that I will, like, forgive films of that time. The one thing that truly bothered me, though, was that at the end, um, Clarissa suddenly is in love with um, the main character. Yeah. And we never get a moment as to why. <laughs> I th- and it was just like the most misogynist moment of like, oh no, she's just going to fall in love with him. And she's just going to be in love with him now. And now she's going to like try to save him. But yeah, there's no reason. There's no I, reason. I, would, I wouldn't call it misogynist, but I think a lot of the characters in this are one dimensional. It's just another one dimensional. She doesn't even have one dimension. <laughs> yeah, she's barely, she's honestly barely in the movie. But uh, I think she's drawn to the outsider nature of the main character. Like she also is almost like adopted into this society it's just but she she's on is the... one of them she she twists one time no. you see her twisted she is but she's like only half of one of them whereas like he was like half of one of them too till oh, the end that's they like, interesting and they like refused him right that she's half yeah. the shunters she's half poodle well i mean i think she's, she's full a golden poodle, poodle. I think she's full poodle, but but they see her as like the lesser version. So like in a way, she's an outsider and that's why she's drawn to him. That's such an interesting uh, thing that you pointed out. Yeah. Where is her father? Is her father a full poodle? And they do mention that her mother may be a sex worker. So is she maybe a mistress of one of the people that are there? Is her mother a creature or? I think she is. We see her spitting up hairballs and stuff and... Her mother's a very strange character. She's definitely a creature, dude. Definitely. Why isn't she at the orgy? Because she's, like, brain damaged. She's like an outcast. She's like, oh, we have this, like, kind of mentally ill person in the family. She's like the black sheep. Both of them are. That's why they're kind of like outsiders, but outsiders within the family. Yeah, the, right? the society doesn't seem to like the mom very much either. The Clarissa's mom, who I don't think has a name. Yeah, yeah. I... 
Yeah, she just misses uh, misses something. Yeah, and I had such a problem with it at first, and I think through this conversation, I'm realizing um, I had a problem with her being the only more heavyset woman um, cast in this film. But I think you guys pretty much hit it. Is like she is another because she is more heavyset. Um, I think it is a little problematic that she she doesn't have any dialogue and that she is brain dead, and that the whole thing that makes her creepy is her look. Um, and I think that yeah. is really problematic. But I think it is also a commentary on the other ring that is seen throughout this film. Yeah, I think that's fair because there is this kind of like whole superficial air to the aristocracy. So it makes sense that one of them is like, oh yeah, that's like cousin Clarissa's mom, you know? She's one of us, but not really. And she's the black sheep, you know? I mean, this movie is indicative of like 80 stereo like tropes. It's like the max, man. You really get a feel of like the Goonies, Time Bandits. It's almost like feels like Top Gun at some point. I know Top Gun's 90s, but it's all like Beach Boy jumping around stuff. It's like Teen Wolf of that time too. Oh, that yes. Actually- it's so teenage, um, like teenage <laughs> 80s-dumb to the max. I know um, the guy who plays Billy, whose name is also Billy, actually Billy Warlock. Billy Warlock. Was on Babe Watch. Babe, Babe Watch. Babe Watch. Wow, that's a slip of the tongue. But I mean, hey, I watch him. He's a babe. But yeah, he's like super 80s, super Hawkeye 80s, super like uh, yuppie 80s golden boy. So was him and like Ted Ferguson. I liked his friend Milo, who was definitely not that. But, you know, he was definitely like a Screech type character, a Saved by the Bell. I think my biggest problem with this is the pacing. Because it definitely takes a serious dip right after around the midpoint of the movie. Yeah. Where you're just like... Wow, what's gonna happen? Then the ending comes in, you're like, oh wow, this was definitely worth watching. And it's like I, I think everyone should see this movie who's into any kind of like body horror, surrealist horror, because yeah. it really does save itself in that last thirty minutes. And definitely. to me it becomes one of one of the movies on my top hundred list. I thought yeah. yes, it's a campy it's not really campy, but it like kind of campy eighties movie. I really liked the acting <laughs> by the male roles. Um Okay. specifically yeah, yeah. i think the female roles didn't really have much to be working with other than being sexual objects but all the men i really did enjoy with what they were given from the script that is true like his girlfriend at the beginning she basically does nothing except just be like kind of a jealous girlfriend why is she even in the movie I, I mean i guess it just just to show that clarissa is this other outsider drawing him away from that life. yeah but I mean, also his girlfriend who, who's from slumber party massacre too by the way yes uh yes love that movie uh, she she also isn't in the shunting, so no, she's, she's an outsider. They, they make it very she's clear that she's hungry to join this society. And there's a moment when they're at the school that Billy goes, "Why do you only care about what other people think of you?" I I don't remember the quote specifically, but he says, "You know, there's more to life than just social status." And I thought it was really interesting for her to be brought here as a person who didn't have social status but wanted it because no one else mm. in this film who didn't have social status wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, she's, yeah, and that's she's actually, kind of like Brody's wife in the last film. What was her character's name? Charity. She's kind of like Charity in a way then. Yeah, but the difference is that Ready or Not, Charity was able to marry into it. And in society, that is not possible. They are a different no, species. No. You cannot become one of them. Yeah, I guess we should combine the two films now. Um, I think society actually takes it a little bit further than Ready or Not does. Because Ready yeah. or Not, like you can be introduced into society, right? Society, you can't be. They are separate from us. Like we are simply their herd animals. We are the factory farmed, what did I say? Homo expendables, the homo feed. We are human material. Society, I mean, Ready or Not has never been called subtle by anyone. But 
when you compare it to society, all of a sudden, ready or not, looks subtle. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think society is a little more subtle, honestly. Society is a lot more specific about its critique. I think it's 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 a simpler critique. I think it's a simpler satire in, yes. in the fact that it's um, straight classism. It's the the rich and the people that the rich feed upon. Whereas ready or not had multitudes to its satire. Um, like I had mentioned the um, people living in their fantasy world, the belief system, you mentioned the Illuminati. I think there's so many different facets, but I think like David said, society is like just straight up rich. I disagree because yeah. there's this whole like grooming process that isn't even like touched on in Ready or Not. This idea that the rich pretends and beguiles the rest of us to think that we have entrance into the society when really we're actually barred off. Whereas Ready or Not, that's never really put up. It's just all Ready or Not says is that you have to sell your soul to enter into us. Mm. You have to throw your moral failings, your moral compass by the wayside in order to become rich. But it is possible. In society, that's not possible. You are you would never have entrance into this. You're barred from that. You're just strictly fee. So Devin kept using this word uh, othering and how society others people. Um, and I just want to talk about that for a minute. So there there's a philosopher named Carl Schmidt, and I use the word philosopher loosely because he is literally a Nazi. If you like this guy, then know that he is literally a Nazi. The Red Skull, the villain of Captain America, was named after him. Um, but his whole thing was that he argued that all politics are just about identity. That you place yourself in a group. You say, I am a Jew. I am a white person. And then you say, uh, I hate the other group. That you identify with a group and you have to oppose the other one. And society kind of leans into that a lot. They're, they're literally a different group. They are literally a different species. Um, that does fall into Nazi politics when you consider, like, eugenics. It right. does. Okay. But yeah, this movie has a lot about eugenics. <laughs> well, sort of, sort of. I, I mean, it is talking about eugenics, but it, but it, it goes further in saying that this is beyond eugenics because you actually like we're, we're the species have diverged at one point. I, I mean, it makes you could it makes you wonder whether or not like the aristocracy in society at one point was part of Homo sapiens and whether or not there was like a missing link and they diverge. But I think they did evolve from Homo sapiens. They they look like us. Well, they can look like us, but they can look like a lot of things. It's true. I mean, after the shunting, though, they are pretty, like, hot and heavy. It's think that most of the time they're not in this weird state of, like, contortion. Except for his sister, when he's looking in on his sister in this, like, Oedipal scene, which, ready or not, also doesn't mess with the idea of incest in the rich. Yes. Right? Um, Society does a lot. Well... Does it? Not, not explicitly, but I would argue that Alex has an Oedipal complex... Uh, that he does not like his father, but he does love his mother so much that when he is forced to choose between his mother and his wife, he chooses his mom. That's a stretch. That's no, I mean, society I get, is a stretch. But literally, <laughs> they stretch. Yeah, yeah. Good one, bro. Uh, that's a stretch. I mean, there, we're never getting the sense that he wants to sleep with his mother, though. Like in society, we're even getting the sense that Billy has has like feelings for his sister when he's checking her out in the shower. In society, they literally say, if you have any edible fantasies, now's the time to exercise them. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 the, the themes of society, I think, are a little bit more subtle than the actual text. The text is like balls to the wall. Here you go. This is what we're dealing with. 
it's it's an odd text. There are so many lines in there that I was like, is this emblematic of the time? Or are they throwing these in there to like try to break it up with comedy? Or is this actually what they want to happen? Like when um when Clarissa's making him tea, and this is the greatest line in the movie, and I love it so much. Um, and I but I don't know why it's there. She asks, Do you want cream or sugar or should I pee in it? <laughs> <laughs> And that, I was like, no, but yes, yes, fucking yes with this line. Why is it there? I don't know, but it's fantastic. Because the entire thing is sexual promiscuity. It's all about incest. It's all about um, debauchery, man. When I was making notes on the movie, I wrote incest so many times in my notes that the next day I was texting someone and I tried to write incredible and my phone autocorrected it to incest. It's awesome. I oh, blame society what, for that. I wonder what your Google searches look like now. <laughs> there is so much sex in this movie and it, like that was definitely a big point of the film but like man this billy guy is so hypnotized by vaginas like the mm-hmm. dude literally cannot function if he's near anyone with a vagina i'm like <laughs> is this i mean i get it maybe this is what being a teenage boy is but like geez man have some agency at some point That's it's awesome. kind of about puberty in a way in a way right like yeah I mean, there's a part where Clarissa definitely. squirts sunscreen on him. That was that... yes, I love that scene because it's 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 the low angle and she's like has the power in that situation and just full on <laughs> jizzes in his face and I loved it. Yeah, there's this idea that the rich need the poor in order to feast upon them. Right? There is a parasitic relationship between the rich and the poor. Yeah, yeah, that the rich are rich because they use the poor and they benefit from the poor. Yes, yes. And it's this, un, it's this unachieved uh, prosperity, right? You don't deserve it. The only reason why you get it, you get it off the backs of the poor, right? We're raising them up, and they're sucking our innards out through gross tubes or sacrificing us to Satan and whatnot. <laughs> and that seems to be, like, the most significant through line between these two films is, like, an outsider learning what society is really about, learning, looking into the guys and seeing the cogs of the machine, and it's horrifying, and it's bad. And then if you ask me, the two biggest thematic differences is the barrier of entry, which we mentioned earlier. In uh, Ready or Not, the barrier of entry is high, but there is one. The barrier of entry in society is impossible. Yeah. You cannot get in. And I think that's so important. Um, I also think there's a difference in how they portray the evil, that in society, the rich people are just evil they are just going to do this and there is no nuance to it there's no motivation they're just oh we we like having orgies and incest and killing rich people we've always sucked off low-class shit like you (laughs) and then in ready or not there's like it's because their family tells them it's okay they're doing it for their family not because they hate poor people but because this is what they've been encouraged to do and they have to choose between doing this crazy shit or losing their family and they even have reservations about it daniel's entire arc in the movie is uh i don't love this i drink a lot uh but i'll do it anyway i'll i'm not gonna kill you myself but i'll still write you out to my family to I think this is really wrong and I'm going to betray my family for you. That's Daniel's entire arc in Ready or Not. They have the ability to recognize that this is evil, which is why I also think that Ready or Not avoids that othering trap that society has. That's a really interesting concept that it's kind of like 
it's not explicitly stated whether or not it is a choice to suck the life force and shunt yeah. um, people in society. But it's kind of implied that they don't necessarily have to do this to survive because it's not like they're like feeding on people like vampires all the time. They only shunt every once in a while. Well, it is you know? kind of vampiric. There's that mosquito imagery, and of course, mosquitoes. I mean, yes, there there, there is definitely the leech imagery, the parasitic idea. Like they need them for their affluence, right? But we're not necessarily told explicitly that if they do this, they'll die. Whereas in Ready or Not, True. that's it. You must do this. This is like this is self self preserving. This kind of thing. Yeah. Right, right. They're ready or not, they're very more sympathetic towards the wealthier characters. I think we feel a lot of that today after the Trump era. Um, but I think to an extent where we're still trying to understand why these people are doing what they're doing um, versus maybe back then that's not what they wanted. Maybe back then, like, they wanted a clear cut us versus them. I don't know. Like, it is more terrifying to me that they don't try to sympathize with the yeah. villains. Um, yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's, it's kind of like against the times of the film, you know, because it was like the, at the, or maybe not really, it was at the tail end of the yeah. like, 80s excess, right? Like the 80s was all about like bigger, better, we need more, we need more. Like, it was also watch... in the final days of the, of the Cold War. Yes, it was in the final days of the Cold War. It was right at the end of the Reagan administration. In fact, it was released after the Reagan administration. But it was definitely shot during the Reagan administration. It, it, it was, it was like oh, almost an explicit critique of this kind of like materialistic excess. Yes. Uh, so Devin sent us an article by Noah Berlotsky of We Are the Mutants called A Matter of Good Breeding, the Shapeshifting Elite in Brian Eusen Society. And in that, Berlotsky compared the movie to a communist metaphor, which surprised me i had never thought of it that way it's about the super rich he explains how like because the the rich people are shown fusing into each other and kind of becoming the same thing he compared that to the blob the movie the blob and how that's a communist metaphor um and then he also argued that it kind of blends together communism and capitalism into like it's it's just whatever your politics are this is the other thing um, and I found that really interesting, and it ties into that time. Uh, Reaganomics was the alternative to communism, but... Yeah, the, the communism bit, I, like, didn't see at all, and I thought it was, like, such an interesting comparison to make. The one thing that I do like that he uh, they pulled out of that article was the loss of individualism specifically, like David was saying, how the rich all infused with each other. And I think that goes into our whole talk about like the other is like the loss of the individualism. Once you join these societies, when you're a part of these other societies, you can't be anything but a rich person, but a wealthy person, but a yes. part of the society. Yeah, and see, I would think that's taking it a little too far. I think it was just uh, critiquing the like insatiable hunger of the rich, this kind of like disgusting gluttony of like capitalism you know just but like it it's does consuming everything what it does other them though because like when we talk well, about it, it othering, does other them yes usually we think of it as being something to do with race or religion or whatnot but it doesn't have to be it's just whatever you identify as that can include yeah. rich first but as a communist metaphor it's kind of missing it because like it's not like they're losing their identity they're just engorging themselves as a team I mean, that's a little bit different. They're, they're maintaining their their identity. It's not like they fuse together their one thing. Like, even when they're all in, into each other, their incestuous cycle, when uh, when Jenny's head is between her mother's legs and yeah. their father's a butthead, which is <laughs> <laughs> so stupid, but so awesome. So stupid. Right? Like, like, they still maintain their own personalities. 
the really interesting thing about the article was that it critiqued horror imagery, imagery and how it's pervasive across different kinds of thematic uh, leanings in film. Because the idea that there's like a blob that absorbs you can be used as a communist metaphor as it was in the initial blob movie, I think. Yeah, because it, it consumes you, you lose your identity. It's, it's this idea that, you know, we, we lose all, and through commerce and things, we, we gain a sense of identity through, through like a common path, whereas we all just merge together, we're just kind of like mindless. Um, in society, there isn't really that mindlessness, but just the image itself taken out of context can be seen as very similar. Now, the even better example, which they do give, is that they live, which is supposed to be critiquing Reaganomics as well, and this kind of consumerist lifestyle and that like neoliberalism were run by these like cadaverous aliens that are just trying to steal from us and exploit us, etc. <laughs> and then the working class proletariat guy turns against them and his his solution is to ethnically cleanse them by kill them all was taken later by neo-Nazis as like, oh, this is what happened in Nazi Germany. They looked at all the Jewish elites and were like, let's cleanse them. Which was not what Carpenter intended. Absolutely not. I really don't. Not in any way. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's also a big stretch in the way you can see the film. But we can see how if you're smart and you know what to look for, you can take kind of any argument and justify it given the evidence. And symbolism in particular is very easy to change. Yes, and that does also speak to... There, there's a lot of value in this kind of just extreme radical symbolism but there is also a danger to it, as expressed by what you just described, they, with They Live. And Ready or Not does show that the rich people are still people. They are still human beings. They didn't make this deal with the devil. That, that was Alex's great-great-grandfather made a deal with the devil, and now they all have to pay for it. Inheritance is a big role in both films. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I didn't even think about that. Well, thanks, guys. Now we're going to wind this down to my favorite part of the show, Bone Reviews, where we rate each film on a one-to-four bone system. How many bones do you give, Ready or Not, David? Okay, four bones. Full skeleton. <laughs> I love this movie. Wow. I'll watch it any time. I, I love this movie. I will say, after uh, watching it the first time and not enjoying it, and then uh, I am so glad that we watched it again because I will also give it four bones. Woo! Four bones. Um, I'm going to give it three bones. I liked it a lot. But to me, Four Bones needs to be, like, absolutely amazing, full skeleton. That's what I think this movie is. Yeah. I'd watch it. I like Ready or Not a lot. So uh, next is Society. How many bones, David? I'll, I'll say two for now. I'll say one and a half tomorrow. I like it. I like the last half hour. I don't like the first hour. Yeah. I like the last half hour. Yeah. I would I would give this one bone, and then the ending gives me another full bone. I think yeah. this, this is a two-bone movie for me. So I would give, I'm, I'm like Devin, I would give uh, Society two bones. But because of the ending, I had to give it a full-on bone for three bones. Because <laughs> I actually like society better than Radio or not. And I know on a technical level, a writing level, a pacing level, it's a worse movie. But it is just so different and so unique. And it's the kind of film, after I watch it, I'm thinking about it a lot more than Ready or Not. Ready or Not is like popcorn. Yeah, eat the rich, whatever. But society, I'm like, oh my god. That's crazy. Uh, one last note on this film, uh, Brian Yuza, he based the ending on nightmares he had and a really weird painting by Salvador Dali called The Great Masturbator. So if you want to take a look at that. Um, I think that was a great way to end it after we said uh, our bone rating. So thank you for that. All right, guys. So this is going to be 
uh, an ending to episode one of Cadaver Dogs podcast, Eat the Rich. And uh, see you later, pups. Mm-hmm.